You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and I'm very pleased today to be introducing you to Sakiza, unless you've already met her, in which case, hey, look, it's Sakiza again. Um, this is a, a journey with someone who is, I think, has a good, uh, a good claim on being one of the hardest working comics I've ever spoken to. Uh, interrupting her holiday for this interview, uh, we're going to meet an incredible comic with a superhuman work ethic. Sakiza's day job is an immigration lawyer, uh, and then she absolutely fills every moment of her life with shows and other work and uh, podcasting, planning and strategizing and writing and so on, uh, which sometimes leaves her only four hours a night to sleep. I'm tired just recalling it now as I sit in my uh, little cellar uh, recording these blurbs. I've got so much respect for someone who not only does all this work, but also is as candid and open about it as Sakiza is. I think that the conversation about class in stand-up comedy and the different opportunities available to people who are working class compared to people who are middle or beyond uh, is one that is being had more and more, and I hope that this contributes to it. There are extras available exclusively to the Insiders Club, uh, including Sakiza on her experiences teaching at Soho Theatre and her new wrestling podcast. Uh, all of those are available at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. But here and now, this is Sakiza. You join us, Sakiza, from Glittering South End. <laughs> Could we say where you're recording from? Is that allowed? Do you mind? Yeah, you can say I'm recording from a Wellspins. <laughs> I think it's a first. <laughs> I think it's a first <laughs> in the history of the podcast. And it shows nothing but your commitment to making this appointment, even though you're away <laughs> from home and gigging elsewhere. So I respect it and thank you for that. What are you doing? I was South just End? like, I, I am gigging, but I decided to take like a mini holiday. Um, so taking a mini holiday, uh, just to do some admin, some writing, because I don't have time. Joe, you don't have time. Are you still a full-time immigration lawyer? No, I reduced my hours. So I'm a part-time immigration lawyer. Um, so I've been doing that part-time since, I want to say for April or May. Okay. okay. It was just too much. I couldn't juggle two, two full-time jobs. It, they're full-time jobs, right? I mean, immig- I don't know much about immigration law, but it sounds pretty full-time <laughs> to me. And I do know that comedy at the level that you're operating is pretty full-time. So yeah. has it been successful? Was it, was, it, was it a big 
um, decision to go part time? Is that like a big life thing where you're like, oh, I guess I'm I'm following this path then? Well, I've been like technically full time performing for like the last two years. Um, it's just because I being a lawyer is like something that I've worked really hard at. I spent a lot of money on like in terms of education and stuff. And I didn't just want to be like, oh, I'm just going to throw away this career. My aim was always to be like, can I come back to this job if comedy doesn't go well? So I'm slowly and surely getting used to like moving away from law. Okay. And plus it's getting on my nerves at the moment, immigration especially. So, Jeez, yeah. And does that, do you think that having a real thing that you still do in the meantime, albeit part-time, like a real thing that you're invested in and that you've trained for, it's like, you know, we, we know there's a lot of comics who used to be doctors or are GPs mm. and then gradually they let go of it. I remember being backstage, I've been backstage with Paul Sinner years ago where people would be asking him GP questions and then still years ago, but more recently where people would ask him GP questions and he'd say, I'm no longer qualified to give you an answer. Like yeah. it's, it's quite an intense sort of a thing that that you're that you've been doing and that you are doing. Does it allow you to make different choices about how you operate as a comic? Because there is a real kind of there's a sort of a backbone of sorts happening there. Um, I think people expect me to talk about immigration way more than I do than I do on stage. Um, I don't really talk about it that much. Um, on stage I, I mostly like to show off the fact that I am a lawyer I'm like yes you thought this working class woman was not smart she is also a lawyer mm. <laughs> um, so I like to do it that way but I think my personality is very different to like my legal personality if you want to put it that way is very different to my stage persona so like, I think I'm, I'm happy to accept that <laughs> yeah, yeah. Be sensible <laughs> yeah so yeah, it's just a bit. It's a bit interesting when you're having to juggle both worlds. But it's just also a nice thing for me to like shut off in terms of like immigration and the job, and then just go and do some gigs. Yeah, I wonder if in the future that will be how comedy works. You know, we're all in this sort of landscape of comedy at the moment. Where in my time as a comic, it was like you do it, you're out on the road the whole time because you have to be. And then as you get better and better, unless you make it like crazy famous, you're still out there. I mean, even if you do make it to that level, you're still out there on the road. And now it feels like much more people are much more kind of portfolio comedians where it's they've got online stuff and they've got live stuff and they've got something else they do and what have you. I wonder if you're if this way of doing it is sort of I suppose what I was getting at before is in terms of the choices you make, presumably there are gigs that you don't have to take financially because you also have a proper job. So you can be more. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, no, I would say up until like a year ago, I was like still like doing some open mic spots, um, probably up until like a year ago. Um, and that was because I was doing like our shows and I had to figure out new material. But like so, since a certain show has aired, I'm kind of like, no, my clout is much better than it is now. So we are... Which yeah, particular one of, was that? You've you've done lots of you've done lots of bits of bobs on TV. Which was the one that was like the certain show? Apollo. It was. Um, so I actually did Apollo and then went into my job the next day and sat down and was like, "Why am I here? 
I literally just did the biggest show ever. Why am I here? <laughs> so those kind of things made me realize that I don't have to do certain things anymore. Um, so, and also like with comedy, I've always felt like you could be flavored the one month, like one time, like one month. And then like two months later, I know I give a damn about you. Mm-hmm. And this world that we're living in currently, especially with like performing and comedy is all about social media. And I'm kind of like, I hate social media. I'm kind of more like a live, see me live kind of vibe. And do you think, does that still feel like an option? Do you know what I mean? To like, to kind of reject the concept. Like I'm having chats with friends who are like, oh, my agent's really frustrated because I don't do enough Instagram or what have you. Like that's really becoming a thing. Um, And I mean, to me, that's a, that's a, like, that seems so completely backwards. Like it's your choice, you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. up to the individual to go, this is how I'm going to do it. But there is this big kind of wave of, you know, we're seeing all the time, both of our contemporaries, I'm sure, kind of suddenly going, suddenly accelerating because they can suddenly sell 600 tickets in a room because of their socials. Is that yeah. something that you feel with your kind of, um, you know, with your educated approach and your kind of like proper job reality is that something that you feel it's still a possibility to go, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to build a crowd organically. I I would hope so. Like I have really like hoped that I didn't have to rely on social media. Like, but because of when I like started comedy and, and especially the last couple of years, it has been social media heavy. You you kind of realise that in order for you to sell tickets, in order for people to come and see your shows, you have to be good at both. And that is quite frustrating. Because <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't yeah. be on social media if I didn't have to be. Yeah. Do you... Do you... Yeah, I'm just wondering... I tell myself that I wouldn't be on social media if I didn't have to be. I, I think I'm lying to myself because actually what I like is the voyeuristic aspect of it. I like seeing what's going on and using it to either make myself feel better or worse. I get my own little yeah. kind of dramatic version of it and kind of castigate myself with it or or go, well, maybe I'm doing better than that person in all of those grubby little ways that we interact with it. But um, But I also think that I, yeah, I don't know if I'd be able to totally cut it out of my life. Do you think you would? Would you be like, I'm a live performer. I'm a live person. I don't need any of this. Yeah, I think, like, I really enjoy Instagram for the gossip, obviously. When the gossip comes out, that's always great. Um, but, like, I wish, like, A-casters, like, obviously doesn't need to have social media now. He can just, you put his name on a, a bill and he sells tickets, like, ridiculously, like, like that. So that's what I would love to be able to do. I feel like social media at times can be quite toxic. Um, especially when you're worried about what people's views of you are going to be. And that's the thing I don't really enjoy. I don't really like Can that. you just drill a bit further into that, specifically what kind of views, in the sense that, like, have you been attacked on social media? Or, like, yeah, so, like, I've been called racist on social media. Obviously, I talk about white people quite a lot because, you know, why not? Um, so... <laughs> I've been called racist before. Um, that was quite fun. Um, by a white person? I've been called... Yeah, by a white person. I've been called racist. Um, I've been called racist to my face as well. And I was like, mm. I've been 
like body shamed online. So that's not great, obviously. But, and obviously you get like, oh, you're not funny, that kind of stuff. But it's because obviously you're trying to sell yourself to the public. You want to get people to come see your shows. You want people to come buy your tickets. And if they don't like you and you see that they've put a comment, you feel like it's going to have a knock-on effect to, to what other people think about you. Yeah. I wonder if that's true. I wonder, I don't think I've... I, I mean, I'm not saying it's not true that you uh, that you think it, but I just wonder about when I've seen something that I love on social media, some routine or, you know, a clip or some reels or something, if I've seen people in the comments, you know, slam it and be horrible about it, I don't think it's changed my opinion of it. And in, to a certain extent, there's a, there's like, if people argue about something, it drives it up in the, in the algorithm because people are commenting. But then I suppose yeah. in my case, I've had very little kind of personal attacks. So if there have been arguments, they've kind of like, oh, that could be quite a positive sort of a thing. But I suppose you're you're a pretty new comic. Like, tell me when again when you started. So officially, I started. Uh, what were we in 2013? So I officially started 2015. Okay, okay. So you're not you're new, but you're not a baby. Yeah. So people keep calling me like the new like a new comic or an up-and-coming comedian it's because like for the first like five years probably like first four years I wasn't really like doing much if you want to put it that way like I was working in the pub at Comedy Virgins and like doing stuff and like doing the open mic circuit and then it was until like BBC Awards in 2017 that I was like we're gonna have to push ourselves to do it and then by the time 20 19 happened a lot of my friends who started at the same time at me were doing their debut shows and I had a full-time job I had two part-time jobs at that time plus stand-up comedy I just didn't have the time or energy to like try and invest like so much time into doing an hour show Mm -hmm. so I kind of was behind from everyone else because I had a life away from comedy that was priority was looking after myself and my family so trying to like juggle everything and try to figure out who I wanted to be as a comedian who and get to the point where I don't care what people think of me anymore was like a work in progress yes yes because you are at that at that stage of it your relationship with comedy is such that if you're not able to gig as frequently, that's like the main, that's the main piece of advice they give everyone is you just got to get out there and you can quite reasonably say, I can't. Mm. And also like, sorry. And also just like not feeling, and obviously we had the pandemic. So then after like 2019, I was like, well, debut in 2020 or 2021. And then the pandemic happened and that was not possible. So that was like another two and a half years before I could debut my show. How did you feel about that? How did you feel about that, about having to wait, about the, how did you feel about needing, whether through the pandemic or through the kind of financial responsibilities you have, having to, it's like, you, you, there must be a sense of like, put me in coach. Do you know what I mean? I'm good at this. It's going well. I want to keep doing it. I can't keep doing yeah. it. I can't learn all those lessons I want to learn. I can't do, it's hard enough to do the hard yards without saying I can't really do them yet. Yeah, it was, it was quite tough because I was working all the time 
um, probably like 20 hours a day. Um, Jesus Christ. So, yeah, it's 20 like 18, hours 20 a day. hours. Yeah, like 18, 20 hours a day. So, I'll go, for example, on, let's say on a Friday, I will go to my job in the day. So, I'll, become, I'll be a lawyer in the day. And then I'll finish at like six. And then go to the pub to work from like seven to close. And then go home and have like four hours sleep and then have to wake up in the morning. Jeez, how would how are you alive? Oh, <laughs> you know what? It's a popular question. I'm not gonna lie. It is a popular question. It's the top three popular questions. So yeah. But it's it's I come from a working class background, so we have to do what we have to do. So and my body's kind of used to it now, so having to like always work. So did that mean, I mean, I would imagine that the positive aspects of comedy were like when a gig goes well, you get an enormous adrenaline rush and it's enjoyable. You feel you've got self-determination, all those kind of things that maybe, you know, you get to have your your time and space on stage when a lot of the rest of your time and space is accounted for. Presumably when a gig goes badly, like I'm interested in in sort of the enormous resilience that you must have shown to be, I mean, I, I I can think of bad gigs I had early on where I didn't then have to go and do a 20-hour day the next day. And if I had it done, how the fuck would I have kept doing comedy? Uh, yeah, chicken wings helped. <laughs> bad gig, chicken wings. Good gig, chicken wings. And then you just, <laughs> I think sometimes you just have to throw, like, you have to realise that tomorrow is a new day. And then you just have to be like, I can't let these strangers who don't know who I am affect me, you just get up, dust yourself off and move on. And I think because of my mum's resilience, that's how I've been all my life. You just got to get up and dust yourself off. Some days are harder than some. Like, um, I remember last year, I basically did a gig the day that my grand died. Um, and I probably should have cancelled it, to be honest. But I was very much like, I don't like letting people down. But I felt like I should. I, in the end, I probably shouldn't have done the gig because I went and going. I went to go see my gran after she was passed away. Um, I thought it was quite, to be honest, quite resilient how my gran died. I'm not going to get into the details, but she, long story short, she had cancer, and the day that she passed away, um, they were bringing a hospital bed to the house, to the flat, and my. I think like my gran was just like. No, if I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die in my own bed. She was, and so she passed. Yeah, she passed away just before the hospital bed arrived to the flat. So I thought it was like having the resilience—I can't say words today—resilience to be able to be like, I'm gonna die in my own time, in the way that I want to pass away around family is was quite moving. So we were obviously there for quite all afternoon, and then I was like, I'm gonna go do a gig outside of London. And I don't think it kicked in or like it didn't really like I felt like I was an autopilot on stage and they hated me because a lot of them were like in relationships and stuff like that. And I'm just talking about dick and like relationships and stuff. <laughs> and then having to come back home and like having to sit on the, I didn't really think, think about the gig to be honest. I know it like I didn't do well. I didn't die in my ass, but I didn't do well. And this is obviously last year. 
when I already had like a a profile, if you want to put it that way. So getting on the train, having to think about like, you did not just do well at that gig, but also your grand's passed away today was quite a like a hard thing to like deal with. But then life goes on. You have to get up and do things the next day. Well, does it stop because things happen? So did it occur to you to pull the gig? I did think about pulling the gig. I yeah, I did think about pulling the gig. But because it was like so lastminute.com, I felt bad about doing so because I was like, well, they're gonna have to find a replacement. Um and stuff like that. And I didn't tell them when I turned up that my grand had passed away. I was just very much like in the corner of a, like a downstairs. And it's a lovely show. It's, it's a show that I've done several times before. Um, they've not booked me since, but that's okay. <laughs> She's got too many gigs anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> but um, it was, it's, yeah. So think I did think about pulling the gig, but I just felt bad letting people down. I've always felt bad letting people down. So this is Sakiza, and as you can hear, I felt really bad when I realised that she was interrupting her holiday to appear on the podcast. But how emblematic of someone with such commitment and such drive that I really, I think, I don't remember exactly how much of this I said on tape, but I basically said, we can just stop and do this another time because, you know, you don't need to be going this hard on my uh, for my sake. Um, but just just absolutely brilliant. And I really urge you to check out her material online. There is no one that lights up a room like Sakiza. And particularly, as we as I mentioned in the show, we um, gigged together a few times in Edinburgh. And she's a fantastic comic. And I really loved her hour. But she also has an incredibly sparkling personality um, welded to an absolutely firm authority when she's emceeing. So try and get along and see her live in a live room the first chance you get. Um, you can follow her on Twitter or Instagram at Sakiza Comedy or go to sakizacomedy.com. I am going to do a very brief postamble at you uh, after the rest of this episode to explain to you, uh, in, in the manner of these things, why it can't be longer. But, oh my God, I cannot wait to get my teeth into the precise situation that I'm in now. Um, also, I'm very excited to tell you, I should have opened with this. This is talk about burying the lead. I'm going to be doing spoilers at Soho. I've literally just hit the button on that right now. In fact, by the time you hear this, there's probably a little a little mini advert before each show anyway. So maybe this is, this is superfluous. But on the off chance, that there isn't. Uh, I'm going to be doing spoilers at Soho at the end of November. This is my climate stand-up comedy show, uh, The Funny Side of Climate Change. No, really, The Times. That's a lovely quote, isn't it? And it really is. Please don't be put off by the fact it's about climate. But if you do know anyone who works in that field or has a particular interest in that field, uh, it will be uh, certainly something you could pass on to them. Um, But also it is robust and funny and designed to be funny to everybody. So please don't opt out of it on the basis that, oh, God, Goldsmith's going to be banging on about the climate. There's a tiny bit of that. And there's a lot more stuff about my desperation to uh, call in a bridge strike. You can find out about that in the show. So go to SohoTheatre.com or presumably anywhere you would ordinarily find uh, find me. By the time this goes out, you will see a whole host of um, cleverly aimed uh, and redirecting uh, links which send you to the right place. So come and see spoilers at the end of uh, November. It's a last minute booking. Uh, tell all your friends and uh, let's get it sold out despite a staggeringly small amount of lead time. All right, here's back to Sakiza. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tell me about the relationship between your work ethic, she's got too many gigs, and all the other work you're doing. And you're and and feeling bad when you let people down, because it's like you said, you know, part of the work is your part of the the 20 hour days when you've had to do those has been responsibilities to your family. You mentioned those are people you don't want to let down. Like, what's the is that what is that what you're driven by? Is that one of the key kind of things that drives you to work as hard as you do is not to let other people down? No, I wouldn't say so. Um, I became a lawyer to like make my family happy, to make my parents happy, because I'm the only child. So I had a lot of responsibility to like go to uni and get a good education. But I've never wanted to be like in an office. I've always wanted to be a performer. I used to be a dancer. Um, and that's what I ever wanted to be was a dancer. But my parents, especially my mum, wasn't afraid. And this is nothing against her, like in a bad-mouthing kind of way. She's just coming from a different culture. So her being like, you're never going to make a career out of being a dancer um, was, was something that was just like, well, they don't believe in what I do. We're going to have to like, to like save face, but also to like not have to deal with hassle, just like find another gig. And so that another gig was me becoming a lawyer. Okay. Um, and then started working in this pub during uni and then discovered performing, if you want to put it that way. And then discovered I could be me by doing it and, it, and entertaining people and making people laugh and being on stage. But at the same time, I kind of was like, well, we can't get rid of the education, the the lawyering, because that's going to disappoint your parents. So it was like, well, we're going to have to do both. And okay. how can we do both? By sacrificing some sleep. So. Mate. Sacrificing well sleep, sacrificing seeing friends. So, yeah. Man, I'm suddenly feeling bad about all the times I've whinged about how hard comedy is. <laughs> I feel like the sacrifices <laughs> I've made are pretty minor. I mean, you must you must be in, in rooms all the time with comics whinging about how tired they are and their free time and all the rest of it. 
And that must make you raise an eyebrow. Yeah, it, it is something that people say quite a lot, like, oh, I'm really tired or... Or I've I've been like I'm really tired and where I've fallen asleep if I'm emceeing a gig. I remember emceeing I emcee quite a lot of angel comedy and I'd be upstairs asleep on the floor like half an hour before the show. Someone comes in and goes, We're about to open the, we're gonna start the show. And I'm like, Oh, up. Damn. I've just got too much energy for my liking. I don't know where it comes from. But we're always like wary that how we have to be on at certain times and then when we're not on we are falling asleep on a bus or on a tube or on the floor is that does that feel sustainable now you are in a position with comedy where you're you've got a higher profile you're more in demand presumably you're making more money from comedy does it feel sustainable like can you see light at the end of the tunnel or will there always be the need to keep one hand in immigration law for the sake of your parents if not for your own now, my parents, um, since being on TV, my mum has been very much like, look at my daughter. She is right. a lawyer and a TV comedian. So I think doing certain things, especially since like 2020, my mum's kind of realised, my dad doesn't really matter that much, but my mum, she's been like the one that I've been most like worried about. But since like 2020 her realizing that i've been on tv shows and doing stuff you can see that how she understands that i can make money from this and that how this is a career okay. she came to the apollo recording with my dad and quite a few of my friends who actually have never seen me do stand up on stage before and i came out because we were the first recording so i came out around the back and found my parents because i didn't realize they were still there and my mom had been crying and so, and I was like, my mum, that moment was like, my mum's proud of me. So, yeah. So they understand. How did but the job feel? will go. The job will, the immigration is going soon. I'm not going to say when, but it the job, it's, it's going in the next like six months. You, I won't be a lawyer anymore. Amazing. And is that, is it, some, I've got no idea about that job. Is it something you can pick back up in 20 years? If you, It is, fine. Okay, you're sufficiently yeah. specialised. I'm really pleased yeah. to hear that. I really, I really want to email you and get an auto reply that says, I'm sorry, Sakiza is asleep. <laughs> to reply. Just you mentioning your dad in 2020. I think you came on an online show that I did. Did you have like a steam room in your house? That your dad <laughs> Am I remembering that right? Yeah, so basically when I, my dad would be in the background of quite a lot of the Zoom shows I was in or on the floor. So I'd be there telling dick jokes and he'd just be on the floor watching like his own like headphones in, watching his own YouTube stuff. But um, like on, on one, the floor so as not to crowd your camera angle. Yeah, like, so like for example, he'll just be down there, for example. But... um. Yeah, one day I came home, and this was when obviously when we were allowed to like go out see people. I think it was like yeah. the end, like September or something like that, of twenty twenty. I randomly came home, and there was a like a mini, like a portable steamer, like a human steamer in the living room, and I was like, "Why? Why? Where? What?" And then. <laughs> 
But that was just like, we've got, we've got a portable steamer. I was like, why do we need a portable steamer? We're black. We don't need one in South London in a flat. What are you doing? It's ridiculous. <laughs> and then it basically was a tent and then you kneel in it and then you put steam in it and, it, and that's it. So there's pictures of me me in it and I've got pictures of my dad in it. Um, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the story <laughs> of the portable steamer. I don't know where that is actually now. Oh, I don't know if that's for the best. (laughs) You you mentioned, you mentioned emceeing before and I've got, there's some audience questions later on, if you don't mind. And um, one of them I know is to to do with emceeing because when we last worked together, it was at like in the assembly hall or somewhere in, in Edinburgh when we were doing um, like a sort of thing. Yeah. And you like and we all wanted to go home. Yeah, we all wanted to go home. It was late. It was late in the festival. It was very late yeah. in the early hours of the morning. Um, and you, I remember, like I couldn't see the stage, but I could hear. As soon as you walked on, you just shone. Like I saw your Edinburgh show, and you were shining in your Edinburgh show. But I want to talk more widely about your relationship to an audience. Like who who are you to them, and who are they to you? Oh, I like to think I like to, I'm, I've got weight as we know I've got way too much energy for my liking and I I always think whenever I'm emceeing my job is to make sure the audience feels safe they know they're here for a good time but also don't be a cunt so I can I say that word? <laughs> yeah you can you can right. you can particularly you can particularly say it at the very end of an otherwise very pleasant and positive sounding list that's the best place for you <laughs> yeah. um yeah um yeah but don't be a c word in the show um and I think I've realized that how who I am as a person on stage allows people to understand those three things um to have energy to be able to know we're here for a good time but also if you do some things that I'm not happy about I will get a baseball bat let's not do that okay I will get South London on you let's not do that so my job as an MC is always to try and make sure the show is lovely for the rest of the comedians it's not about me it's about me having a relationship with the audience to know that they're safe but also to know that how we're here just to have a good time I feel like I'm the kind of person that you want to have a drink with after the show and just have like some banter and just have a nice enjoyable night especially because like we do comedy it's always late and we're always like probably the last people that people will see before they go to bed you want them to go to bed on a good note and a good that's feeling nice. I, I never think about my audience going to bed on a good note that's lovely to hear you've just yeah. reminded me as well just on work ethic I remember looking at your schedule. I don't. How did I hear about it? Maybe it was, so, was something. It might something. be on Instagram. It maybe yeah. it was on Instagram, and it was you're literally doing nine gigs a day. You're like, right, I'm hosting this, and I'm hosting that. I'm running over here. I'm hosting that. I'm doing everything else. I mean, I'm sort of reappraising that in the light of what I now know about your usual twenty hour days and your amount of your amount of energy that you have. But is is part of that out? Is that is that wholly driven by? I'm at Edinburgh now, I'm not at the day job, I've got to make every second count. Or is it driven by how much you love doing the work? Or is it driven by something else? Is it is it just like a relentless work ethic that says, if I'm here, I'm going a thousand percent? I didn't do as many, surprisingly, as many shows as I did last year in Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and all the shows I did do this year were ones that were requested for me. Obviously, I did like Late in Live. I was hosting Late in Live. That was lovely. Obviously, hosting all the late night shows. Um, and I felt like it was great for me to know that people had confidence in me to be on these high standard shows. Um, and that's all I ever wanted to do this Edinburgh this this year to be like, I have got this reputation to be a good comedian, to a reliable comedian, um, and to also grow it as a comedian in terms of joke writing, because I'm not really a great joke writer. So that's what I've really worked on this year in terms of comedy. So going up to Edinburgh, I kind of was like, we're just here to live our best lives. Let's just enjoy ourselves. We don't have your parents around you. Just live your best life. Mm. Pow. Uh, so, um, and that's why I really enjoy Edinburgh because it's just like, a, it's a world away from like the world that we live in. And it involves things that I enjoy doing, like performing. So, and I was talking to another comic about this, that how I feel like there should be like comic world you know how that is Disney World. There should be yeah. Comic World where we do like shows um, four days a week. People come around the world to come and see us, and it's great. A sort of like a constant rolling Edinburgh festival. Yeah. Except that there are some days off where we don't have to work. Yeah. I understand that. Do you do you see a lot of stuff when you're at the festival, or presumably you're too busy gigging yourself? No, I did see quite a lot. Um, to be honest, after the first like 10 days, I was trying to see as much as I possibly could. And I always write out like a, a list of shows that I want to see in Edinburgh shows that there's whole, like a whole schedule, like shows that I have like a whole little mini diary that I make up that there's like timing, color coordinated. This is the time you're performing. This is like, there's a whole like list. We have to draft out everyone that you want to see. Um, on a list then we've got to narrow that down and put that into the diary you've got to figure that out around your gigs um, and you, obviously you was on my list and then due to unforeseen oh, circumstances that. yes yeah, <laughs> that's fine you were on that's my fine. list I'm just and then I got sick I think in the in terms of like I do that, of course I do. You know, I'm con- like I do multiple lists, and I don't, I don't know, I do, I do color code as of this year. Actually, it's quite successful. But um, the listenership of this podcast, huge color coding spreadsheet type fans. I think you're the only other comic I've spoken to that says, "Oh yeah, I'm well into that." Like really, sort of methodically, kind of engaging with the process about doing it. So let's let's talk about your Edinburgh and your Edinburgh show because we, the way in, I guess, is you, you were talking about being the MC, making sure everyone gets to bed safely and yet for sure doing late and live all those kind of prestige format kind of shows you really sort of seem to be very visibly present everywhere at, at the festival and I remember last year when you that was your debut wasn't it it was the life of the party so I saw that show and obviously in like the the format of that show is welcome to my party this is a house party and it all kind of fits in together so it really very smartly I think played into you know your um your your attitude to us and your relationship with us how was how was the show this year? I saw your show this year. I forget the title. Forgive me. What was it called this year? Hear Me Out. Hear Me Out. Hear Me Out. Well, I saw that one. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, how did it, did it feel different to your previous one? How do you feel you'd kind of changed or developed in between the two of them? It was probably one of the hardest things I've had to do because 
I've had to like do this show more or less in nine months, whereas the debut was like a two year, like in the making kind of show where this was like nine months. I knew when I left Edinburgh last year, I knew that I wanted to go back. I knew that I wanted to push myself. I knew I wanted to like, I knew what it was going to be about because I've had a feeling about me being dyslexic for a couple of years. And I was like, we're going to, we've got the money now. We can get this done. Um, so I knew what, it want, what I wanted it to be about. I knew what I wanted the ending to be about. But it was about not having that overshadow 15 minutes of material. So I had to work quite hard and nearly pull out, I nearly pulled out Edinburgh twice um, because of it. Like, because it got to like June and July, and I was like, everyone hates the show. And everyone around me, like producers and my director and my agents, were like, the show's great. We love the show. My producers were like talking about touring the show since May. And I was like, no, it's crap. <laughs> Don't do that. Um, so, and it's, I think it's because I did not, it was such a different show for me. It was more personable. It was more honest. It was more vulnerable for me to do this show. But I was really much like, this needs to be funny. I need to work hard and writing some jokes and making these jokes funny. Um, so I feel like I did achieve my goal. Um, and I really enjoyed doing my show, especially at Monkey Barrel. They were lovely. Um, I really enjoyed doing my show. So, yeah. Yeah. That's it. Do am I correct in interpreting that as like I I I feel like you started saying I wanted to pull the show, everyone told me it was great, and then I did it and I enjoyed it. I feel like is there some reservation in there about how it went? Like, do you feel you got there, or do you feel that you have a responsibility to say that you got there because we're doing, you know, everything is relentless PR and you need to kind of go, no. hey man, it was amazing. No, I obviously comedy is subjective. I know some people may not like me or my type of comedy or the things that I do on stage, and that's fine. Comedy is subjective. But where I was with this show, if you want to talk about May or June, when we're like doing hardcore previews, July to where I ended up at the end of the fringe completely changed around for me personally. I didn't want to go to Edinburgh because I felt like I was going to let people down. I thought I was going to let myself down. I thought the show was going to get slated. And I was so worried because it was such a more personal personal show. I was doing things in the show that was more vulnerable for me. Things that the comedy world, especially the ending, didn't really know about me unless you knew me. Yeah. Um, so all those things I was worried about and I didn't know the show properly the first two days and I, I did a lot of changes 
like structure wise and joke writing wise, we added like six new jokes that I had to learn within two days okay. um, into the show. And including like, I had to extend a story like an idiot at the start of the fringe. Um, and added a magician in it because I completely forgot that happened. Um, so all of that I had to remember. And then after like the first four or five days, I started, I literally got messages. So Stuart Laws directed my show mm-hmm. and he basically said, every time you say mayor to me, I'm going to charge you 10 pounds. So I owe <laughs> 150 pounds. Um, <laughs> the whole process but like at the uh, start of the fridge he'll be like he came to the obviously show as well as my producers and agent and everyone's like it's great love it and I was like I don't know personally that this is great I felt like I felt like no offense to them I felt like they were trying to be like very positive around me and if I don't feel positive about something I will say I don't feel positive about this. This is this is not me trying to be negative, but I'm like, this is. Are you looking at what I'm looking at? Are you looking at the same thing? Like, because I don't feel like you're looking at the same thing that I'm looking at. Um, so that's why me going away working on it, and then coming back and doing the show was the point where I was like, okay, we're getting into the groove now. We're feeling it. We're enjoying it a bit more to the point where probably like week two at the end of week two, I think I texted my producer and Stuart being like, I think I love my show. <laughs> and then Stuart was like, gotcha. I knew I'd get you. And I was like, I said, that, I was like, I said, I think I love my show. I said, I think I love my show. And then by the end of it, I was like, I love my show. So. I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased. You just the reason I asked is just that you sounded quite kind of downbeat as you were discussing it. It is it was a hard process and it taught me a lot about my resilience, if you want to put it that way, especially because as well as like having to deal with work, comedy, and I was doing I was dealing with something that was quite personal and quite hard for me at the time that went on for about two years. Mm. And I, my mental health was not great at all. And people find that so interesting when I say that because I come up on stage and I've got this energy and I'm in your, I'm like, ah. But well, not realizing behind the scenes, I was dealing with something quite hard that was um, quite difficult for me to deal with. And not, and it, there was a whole thing going on. So having to deal with writing the show and doing that and then, yeah, with everything going on, it was it was a lot. But I, for me, and I, the one thing I hate about Edinburgh, to be honest, is reviews. I hate reviews. Absolutely hate reviews. I hate the pressure of them. I hate. I hate them. I just hate them. This is why I enjoy like festivals like Mac. You don't have to worry about reviews. Macfest, you don't have to worry about reviews. You just have a great time. The audience is there, know they have for comedy. You just do your show, have a great time, great. Whereas in Edinburgh, you've got to worry about what. No offense, some probably older straight white man thinks about you. So, and that's going to influence whether you do certain things in the future. So, I find that very quite frustrating. Yeah. I hate reviews and I'm an older white man. Do you know what I mean? I can't. 
Do you know what I mean? Like I, the reviews yeah. themselves are like that whole thing is difficult, even without inflicting it with inflecting it mm. with race and gender and all those other things. Just the idea of people having, you know, power and influence over an artist that aren't the artist themselves, let alone all of those all of those other kind of things. Do you read them? See, I always say to myself, I'm not going to read them in Edinburgh. I'm not going to read them. And obviously my agents or producers will put them out on social media and tag you in them so you can see the stars. But my, some of my family members and some of my friends had sent me some yeah. during Edinburgh. And the they were like, the good is, ones. The classic thing is your mum sending you a three star excitedly. Hey, look yeah. at this. And you're like, oh, fuck's sake. <laughs> but they were, they were sent, I was being sent like the four star ones. And like, so when I got the five star Someone sent that to me before my producers or agent even told me about it. And I was obviously quite happy about that. But then you realise where you can find the reviews. Yeah. And then that's where you're like, oh, maybe I'll just, I'll just have a look, a little quick look. But I didn't read the whole reviews. I just saw some people's opinions, some things. And I was just like, yeah, yeah whatever. Yeah. For me, it's about audiences. That's all I care about at the moment. And obviously, industry. If there's any industry listening, please put me on your TV show. <laughs> Thank you so much. I also care about you. Well, that's, yeah. when I when I saw you, every time I saw you, I've seen you sort of several times. The audiences are always going mad for it, and you must really feed off that. Yeah, it it is. It's nice to know that they receive what I'm giving. And they are as enthusiastic and happy as I am. So, and especially when you have like a packed out room, people are dancing, singing along and understand you. I had quite a few people who came up to me after the show or messaged me and were like, I can, I can relate to your show especially because like their fam- like their daughters or their children had been diagnosed as being dyslexic or their family members or someone they dated was dyslexic um, and having to understand from me and being honest about certain things and realising they can see themselves in me was just nice. Is that when you said you were kind of going through a lot of stuff with the show, I wasn't quite sure whether you meant the stuff that you talked about on stage in the show or whether it was other kind of background stuff that you were going through as well. There was other background stuff going on as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there was other background stuff. As well as, obviously, I found out I was dyslexic, which I purposely went and got done. But that opened up a lot of... Um, I don't want to say trauma. That's not the word I'm looking for. It opened up a lot about like me realizing this is the way I am. Like certain things like relationships or even how I talk to people or how I interact with people. Those, it made it harder for me to accept that this is who I am because of it. And I had to really look at myself regarding that and then having to deal with my own mental health like I said I had something else going on that was going on for like 20 months I can't go into detail about it but like that was going on and that was to do with work 
So I was worried about that. I was worried about my future regarding that. And then personally, I felt probably for the last like four years or so that I've not been uh, achieving. And that's not professionally. I'm talking about personally. I feel like I own, I own property in this country and that's been paid off. Um, but my parents live in that flat. I am a, of a certain age. I don't have any kids. I'm not in a relationship. And I feel like a failure in those kind of things. Uh, so that was something I was dealing with. And then obviously I having to write a new show. Like an idiot who told me to do that in nine months. <laughs> um, having to deal with costume, having to deal with, you're still gigging like up and down the country like a maniac. Um, then having to deal with taxes. And I was like, this tax man just take took all my life out of all my money. Why would you do that? That's ridiculous. So it was just it was a lot, and my and I feel like my world is a lot. And this is why, for example, I've come away from London this week to spend some time by myself. Oh, and I made you do a podcast. I'm so sorry. I didn't realize the context. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's perfectly fine. It's only an hour out of the day. It's fine. <laughs> Alex Franklin says, I would love to know, as Sakiz has emceed a lot of open mics, what it's like to see so many people at the very start of doing comedy. Does she notice any changes year on year? Also, huge thank you to her because she literally makes everyone feel so welcome. I and loads of others did our first ever gigs with her and she made that something that could be terrifying, genuinely such a lovely experience. Oh, bless. Thanks. Um, Yeah, I get that comment quite a lot and it's not to boast. But quite nice. <laughs> Good, I'm glad. Um, not, I, don't, I, would, I would like to think I'm one of the, the nicest uh, MCs around the circuit. Um, so yeah, um, I completely forgot the question. The question was that was ages ago. The question was um, uh, what it's like to see so many people at the very start of doing oh. comedy. Yeah, it's actually quite weird to be honest. Um, it's it's quite intriguing because. I was that person and we all were that person at the beginning of our career. And I remember my first gig being on, for example, like I said, Comedy Versions is the only one that I really emcee on a weekly basis um, since the last four years. It's the only one I do. Um, That's like on an open mic level. So it is really like new people or like people who are starting out and you see their nerves. You see the small things they do, which are like, that's, even if it's like stage stuff, like I'm always like, move the goddamn mic out of the way. <laughs> like, <laughs> simple things. Um, and like how people stand. And I appreciate there's nerves involved in stuff like that. But it's always intriguing to see people's resilience and this i feel like this is the theme of like your podcast today is like <laughs> them I coming back i think that is appropriate to you and what you're everything you're doing yeah i think seeing them come back even if they've had a shitty gig come back and be like i'm gonna still come do it i'm gonna push through and i think when you have someone like me who's been there who understands the open mic circuit who wants up and coming people to do well, 
that is helpful in terms of encouragement and gives them faith to know they can do it. But it is, like, especially nowadays, it's very different to what I did at Open White Circuit. There's so many of them. A lot of them are bringers, and people hate bringers, which I appreciate. But it's something you have to do. And people, like, come up to me after shows sometimes at Comedy Virgins and even ask me, oh, how do I end up emceeing? And I'm like, how many gigs have you done? And they're like, nine. And I'm like, babe, let's just... Let's, let's think in small doses, shall we? Let's just, just think in small doses before you think about yeah. that. Or like, they come up to me and go, how can how do I get to 10 minutes? How do I get, get in a 10-minute paid spot? And I'm like, how many gigs have you done? And they're like, seven. I'm like, again, let's just rethink this again, shall we? Because um, that's going to take you a while to get to where you want to be. And, and I feel like people have such a it's a great enthusiasm, but at the same time, it's a misunderstanding about what it takes to be a comic in this day and age and to be seen and to get paid on a, like on the level that we are getting paid um, is, is hard work. And it will be you getting sick of your material. I still do a damn joke that I've been doing for the last eight years that I should not be doing, but it's a good joke and I know it works and it's a solid <laughs> joke. <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, you we have to do the circuit. You have to do certain things, and you have to get past it. You will hit your material, but it's about building. It's about you growing, and it's interesting when you see the people who do come through, who do have that mindset to be like, I need to just keep working. I need to rewrite. I need to edit. I need to just get my stage persona solid. Because it took me two years to figure out who I was to be, who I was going to be on stage. It took me two years. And you have people who come up there who are very cocky. You'd be like, I'm, I'm the shit. I know I'm funny. And you, and they go and die in their ass and open my night. And you're like, say that again. <laughs> go on, say that again. <laughs> well, I think, um, I think the first part of what you said there about, like, I, that's not a thing that I'm used to hearing on this show, actually. And I, I really appreciate the humility of it is recognizing that you can learn something from the kind of, from the determination of open mics of like very new open mics to actually be as a professional comic with a bit of profile, a bit of income and to be able to, to say, do you know what? I can learn something from seeing how these people can come up, have a bad time and then get back up and do it again. I really admire yeah. that, that humility. I think you're absolutely right. I should also say the official position of this podcast is that you do not have to do bringer gigs. I, I can't let anyone say you've got to do them on this without pushing yeah. back on that. I'm very lucky to have begun comedy when they weren't a thing. And thank Christ, yeah. I don't know how I would, would cope with that. Did you do bringers ever? Yeah, I did bringers. Um, and it's, I appreciate like the circuit has changed since we've done it, especially the London circuit. There's so many gigs. There's so many out there. And it does feel like people are being told they have to do bringers. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. Like you, you should just find a show that you enjoy doing and do that on a regular basis in order for you to like figure out who, and obviously you have to do the shitty ones. You have to do the shitty ones. Um, so I give my, the first thing I give my, the people I teach on the course is a list of open mic nights on the circuit and a list of pro nights on the circuit. And I go, you have to go and watch one of each. Mm-hmm. And some of them have been to a notorious, the well-known open mic circuit in London. I'm not going to name it and come back and go, 
oh my God, that was the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Oh, why? (laughs) And I'm like, but those, and then they've gone and after they've completed the course, they've gone and done the show Mm -hmm. so they can experience what it's like to do the show and died on their ass or hated it. It's something you have to do. And you don't, like I said, you don't have to do bringer gigs. People think I run comedy virgins because I've been there for so long. I don't. It's not my rules. It's not my policies. I'm just an MC there. And I work in that, I worked in that pub for 15 years. I've been in that pub for 15, 16 years. That place is home. It's not my rules to bring, for it to bring a bringer. But it is one of the nicest open mic nights on the circuit. Um, but it is very different to when I was starting. And you do hear horror stories and you do hear certain things. You're like, oh, no, that's not for me. Like, and I can't. Who, what was I doing the other day? And someone tried to make, I can't remember what it was, but I had to do like five minutes. And I was like, I can't do five minutes now. That's ridiculous. <laughs> like, how am I going to do five minutes? This, I think it was like, for some, like, I think it was like an audition or something like that. Yeah, it was like some sort of audition. It was like five minutes. I was like, five minutes. <laughs> and I remember talking quite fast. I was like, because I was trying to like cram as much in. But anyway, it is, um, <laughs> it's an interesting world. The open mic circuit nowadays is, is interesting. But I do like seeing people come back and seeing them change their material and hone things in. And I will be, if, you, if someone asks me a question after the show, I will be as honest as I possibly can. And it will be things like, yeah, you're going to be shit off. Your, you're going to be tired of your material. You're going to have to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Or being like, yes, it, most open nights in London nowadays are bringers, but you don't have to do the bringers. There are other ones as well. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. I've got two, I've got two more questions for you and then I'm going to let you enjoy <laughs> your holiday. This is from Tom May. Well, this is a minor one from Tom Mayhew. He says, have you managed to get a Twix advert yet? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm just, really I'm trying. Just, I'm just elevating that message. I want you to do a Twix advert. Tom's question is, the Edinburgh Fringe is very white and very middle class. Do you think it is something you'll keep coming back to long term? Yes, I think it will be. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about this, Stuart. It feels like the Fringe is kind of dying. Um, yes. I wouldn't say maybe dying is a strong one. I, I certainly... I certainly am aware that I'm more keenly aware than ever of how exclusive the fringe is. I used to think the fringe was, and that's partly me and a lot of people, I think, becoming more aware rather than the fringe itself changing. I'm certainly aware, more aware as the, you know, if I say, oh, the accommodation is so expensive nowadays, that's freezing loads of people out. Well, I'm sure 20 years ago or 30 years ago when I first went there as a teenager, I'm sure the accommodation was comparatively nuts and was comparatively freezing loads of people out and I just didn't know about it. Obviously, it's way worse than that, but I think that's probably a a perennial problem. Um, I do think that, yeah, it's changing in lots of ways. I think that um, more and more we're seeing like it used to be where you built your audience and now it's where you sell merch to your audience because you built your audience online. Or, you know, that's like a, a way of looking at it there are more and more and more comics than ever. There are more, I always think of it like uh, student unions. When I was a student, the student union was like, it was like uh, uh, almost like a garage with a couple of sofas that you dragged in there. And it was like a purple light bulb and it was our space. And it was like the clubhouse. And then, and now if I, you know, I mean, God, God knows when I lasted a student gig, but 
maybe 10 years ago, I'd go and do a student uni gig and I'd go, oh my God, this is plasma screens showing adverts in every corner and it's a Starbucks. And to me, so so that's changed. So the fringe has changed in that respect, whereby it is commercialized to the extent that sometimes you sort of can't believe it. Some of the outdoor spaces and the branding and the enormous hoardings and the kind of artificial constructions outside that are all about funneling beer into people. I suppose the free fringe in its various iterations is the closest thing I feel to a fringe or as it used to be. And even then, you know, the blunderbuss and the blunder garden and that kind of area, that almost feels like that's the new free fringe paradigm as the free fringe becomes more, if not corporate, then at least I'm I'm on my soapbox here. (laughs) You know, I, I think it's, I think it is one of the biggest challenges is how exclusive it is to people who can't afford to be there. Yeah. I would completely agree. And I did say, like, I really enjoyed the Pleasance and my venue last year. But I just couldn't financially afford doing that for two years in a row. Yeah. It, especially when you're considered to be like a new up and coming comedian. I've got, I feel like I've got a point to prove. And I wouldn't be able to do that if I spend all my money. Yeah. Because they just feel like you're going up there for what? Um, For you to do your art every day for the, and then you lose money. For what outcome? Yeah. yeah. So it is very, it is very, not very open to diversity or even accessibility especially some venues um and i would prefer if the model of the fringe changed where it wasn't a whole month or if it was a whole month it wasn't every day mm-hmm. i feel like giving people the option to have more days off is better for people's mental health um but also there is enough people nowadays that you can fill in venues and i just think somehow and i appreciate venues need to make money and stuff like that but it's a lot of work for us to get up there to do and to not reap any benefits and to be doing shows like I think the most shows I did this year was five in a day four four in a day whereas last year it was eight in a day and I was just like what's the point when you're not making money Hmm. and I just think the whole fringe situation needs to be a bit more open to allowing people to feel comfortable to feel safe in terms of sexuality race uh gender uh class for everyone to feel like the fringe is an open space that everyone's on the same level playing field yeah i i think one of the one of the things i've always thought about comedy is that comedy is full of nice people who love comedy and it's also full of wankers who realise that nice people can be exploited. Yeah. And I think there is an element of that, which is just pure capitalism. And there is an element of it whereby the fringe 
there are people at the fringe who want to support artists, but there's a lot more institutions at the fringe who give the appearance of wanting to support artists, but actually they're simply a capitalist institution and that's their role. Do you know what I mean? Their role is to make yeah. money for themselves and their stakeholders and what have you. And part of the game of making money is to appear as if the comedians are the most important thing, but they're not. The alcohol sales are the most important thing or the ticket yeah. price is the most important thing. And and it would be lovely to think that going forward, there was any way at all that that could change. Yeah. But it's up to the big shots, isn't it? It's up to the... Like, I appreciate... Like, you know how they were like the prize this year may not happen? Mm. The Edinburgh prizes. Part of me was like quite disappointed, obviously, for like the debuts, especially, if that didn't happen. But a part of me was also like, good. Because it fit, like Edinburgh does feel like a competition at times. Yeah. And it and that's not what it should be. It should be about comedians enjoying what we do, which is comedy. Yeah. And it's the same with like the reviews and like it does feel like fringe compared to some of the other festivals that happen is more competitive. It is more like punchy. And that's not what I think the spirit of the fringe should be. It should be about comedians hanging out and the rest of the world enjoying our art. Someone should burn down the fringe, not the building or the people, but the concept yeah. of the fringe, and then be awarded spirit of the fringe. And then we could restart yeah, exactly. on the right. <laughs> exactly. And I've always said like how like people's end goal, especially when they started out like, comedy, is like to do an Edinburgh fringe show. And I've always been like, it's a marathon, it's not a race. You should always like think about what your purpose with doing the Edinburgh Fringe is. So I think that's my catchphrase when it comes to like telling talking to especially new comedians. It's like it's a marathon, it's not a race. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to put one foot ahead of another outside of your means in order for you to do what? Think about, think about your purpose. What's your intention? Why are you doing it? Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Sakiza. I've got one one very last thing, which is your yeah. your law. What's your law? What's Sakiza's law? If you could put one law into comedy that was like your the kind of the, the either the sum of your knowledge or a thing that you think people would benefit from doing, what would your law be? Oh. Oh, that there should always be a rider backstage. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's perfect. So that was Sakiza. Thank you so much to her for interrupting her holiday to come onto the show. What a superstar and an incredibly inspiring work ethic and sort of the necessity behind that I absolutely understand and and I'm really appreciative of Sakiza for coming on and kind of laying all that bare I really really appreciate that um she just doesn't stop and I think we can all be inspired by that so catch up with her on Twitter or Instagram at Sakiza Comedy uh, and go to sakizacomedy.com to find out more about her where she's on tour and whereabouts you can find her live 
Now, you can catch up with me at stuartgoldsmith.com or indeed on all the socials at Stuart Goldsmith Comedy. And, or you can join the Facebook group for this podcast, which you can find on Facebook by looking for it on Facebook. Um, and uh, I have recently discovered there have been a few problems with spammers evading the four questions that you need to, four intriguing questions that you need to, uh, to answer to get into the group. So I have changed the settings on that accordingly. If you find that you're getting bounced out because the settings are too strict now, then uh, please get in touch with a mutual friend who can put you the right way or email me. And despite having said over, I mean, I don't know what, a thousand times on this podcast, you can email me info at comedianscomedian.com. You can now only email me Stuart at comedianscomedian.com because of reasons I will go into in a postamble in just a moment. Thank you to Nathan Wood for uh, producing and editing this show. Uh, the music was by Rob Smout and the title was by Asher Trelevin and the logging was by Susie Lewis. Thank you very much for listening. Um, more intel and info on spoilers at Soho Theatre coming your way very soon. But hang around for a brief and irascible postamble. Cheerio. Oh, how am I ending now? Matthew Crosby suggested I end all of my uh, podcast episodes as I did on a recent one. What, what was the phrase? Wouldn't it be nice to have a consistent self? Take care. <laughs> right, post amblers, this is going to be brief. Oh, my sweet Christ. You will have seen on, uh, if you follow the socials here in the Facebook group, you will have seen that last week I discovered that my email address, info at comedianscomedian.com, which is sort of connected to the comedianscomedian.com site, but pushes through to Gmail, because on Gmail that's where all the things go, and I can, and then I use, this is key to the story as well, I use, as we know, person with ADHD, very busy, very busy brain, lots on, try and get a shitload of stuff done in the world in case I die, can't mention that without thinking, oh, that'll be weird to listen to after I'm gone. Not for me, it won't. Um, but uh, I try and get stuff done, right? And I use my email as my inbox. And the whole thing is, it's a pretty well-oiled machine. Until it turns out that all email sent to info at comedianscomedian.com since May the 15th this year, thank Christ, has been not getting through. It's not been getting through to Gmail. So if you are someone who uses multiple accounts on Gmail, just pop along to settings, all settings, accounts and forwarding and just check there isn't a little red bar saying alert, alert, something's gone wrong, but we're not going to tell you. Not to mention the fact that a few times in the last few months I've thought, like, I don't seem to be getting notified as much as I used to. Maybe maybe things are, you know, it's sort of, it's kind of, it's older stuff that I set up a few years ago and I've been using Stuart at for a long time now. I thought, I'll just send myself a test. And it turns out if you send uh, an email with the subject test from Stuart at ComediansComedian.com to info at ComediansComedian.com, you fucking get it. You still get it. So how was I supposed to know? And now, as we speak, Gmail is pulling through 3,700 unviewed emails. I'm pretty sure most of them are notifications. I've been hacking through loads of that. You know, so you've got a message on LinkedIn, blah, blah, blah. And now I'm down to, I think, a core 500. I have, in the last half an hour, seen, hey, can you do this big corporate resilience gig in Glasgow for us in mid-September? Hello? Are you getting my messages? Fizzes out. Sparkle gone. Oh, so that's... I mean, this is heartbreaking. I've had tech requests from insiders. I've had... Um, I've had people join and people uh, unsubscribe from the Insiders Club. And I always like to, if I can, to send a, a cheery, hey, thanks so much for your patronage. And we've all got, you know, financial situations. Sorry to see you go. Hope you enjoy the show. Haven't been able to do any of them fucking things. 
Like I'm hacking through hundreds and hundreds of emails and my world is falling down around my ears. So um, I'm going to get back to it right now. It's, um, I don't know, what can we learn from this? I'm an idiot. I, but I'm not an idiot because I, I don't think, I mean, I am an idiot, but I uh, I don't see how I could possibly have done this. I've got to, I must remember to do this. I'm going to auto generate an email once a month that says, hey, just check in on your accounts and forwarding and make sure that hasn't happened again. I mean, hot Christ. It's just murder. The amount of, I'm so sorry. If you're someone who's like, Stu normally replies, where have you been? There's a lovely person called Heidi, who I occasionally correspond with, who's, who I, I put on Facebook. Hey, listen, um, this thing went wrong. And she commented, oh, that's nice. I, I've been wondering whether you were sort of ignoring me now. <laughs> I'm not ignoring anybody. I try to reply to everything, everything. And there's a lot. And now it's all come at once. So back to it I go. Extras available at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Uh, my brain is melting. Come and see spoilers at Soho at the end of November. Um, goodbye. Oh, God. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.